Our scripture reading today comes from two places. First, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And then in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and the first chapter, chapter 1. John, chapter 12, we pick up at verse 12, reading through to verse 19. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you'll remember, and it's significant that you do, but you'd remember that in chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So now we come to John chapter 12 at verse 12, and we get this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And then over to the book of Revelation in the first chapter. Verses 1 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, 
and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, today and this week, we join Christians around the world and throughout the ages in marking and remembering the most significant and central events in human history. We mark and remember the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem for that last celebration of the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. To Jesus being delivered into the hands of sinful men, being crucified and on the third day rising from the dead, as he had promised and predicted. And the series of events we mark over the next week or so are once for all never to be repeated events in human history. But they have ongoing significance for our lives and for the lives of the world. And so we love to hear these stories and are happy to re-read these stories again and again to tell them to ourselves and to our children and to those who've never heard them at all, ever. Today we tell the story of both the first and the final triumphal entries of the great king. And of the two kinds of responses to his appearing. This morning, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, as we commemorate that entrance into Jerusalem by Jesus, I want your hearts to be filled with love for him and your lives to be filled with praise to him because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done for you and because of what he will yet do for you in the future. The crowds on Palm Sunday were coming to celebrate and they were coming to commemorate in obedience to God, but in joyful obedience they were coming to celebrate, to mark that first and that great deliverance from slavery in Egypt or what we now know to be the singular Old Testament event by which God demonstrates what salvation looks like and by which they were freed from oppression and from slavery as they were constituted as a nation, as they were fed in the wilderness, protected from their enemies, brought into the full enjoyment of the abundance of life in the promised land. And all the way along through that whole series of experiences, they were being taught and enabled to worship the God who saved them. Well, that's what this crowd is doing on Palm Sunday. They are streaming into the city of Jerusalem from every road in the empire, and they are coming to celebrate the Exodus. Jesus is just one of many who are coming in. And as they are coming in to celebrate the Exodus from uh, their perspective, from Jesus' perspective, he's not only coming to celebrate the the, uh, Passover, but to fulfill it. He is going 
into the city as the Passover lamb whose blood is going to be spilled. He's going to be marked and identified and treated as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's going to succumb to the enemy, be handed over, delivered into the hands of sinful men. He's going to enter into the waters of death. But he will emerge on the other side. He will rise victorious as our great deliverer so that we and many others might not only be delivered from our death, but then united together as a new covenant community where he makes us into a new holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? They worship. He's going to preserve and to protect us from our enemies. He's going to receive our worship while we wait for the full expression and the full enjoyment of life in a new heavens and a new earth, an indestructible life we will share with him by virtue of his own resurrection from the dead. All this is coming together and so much more as Jesus joins the stream of of reveling worshipers who are going up to celebrate. And the word is starting to spread in every direction that Jesus is in Bethany, just on the outskirts. And you have all these friends who had come to mourn the death of Lazarus, who surround his family with their love and affection and compassion in their time of grief, who also happened to have witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead because Jesus spoke the word and he was made alive. Those, uh, that crowd had gone back home to Jerusalem after that period of mourning that turned into celebration. But now they hear Jesus is back in Bethany, so they come out of the city. So not only do you have a stream of people coming from everywhere else going into the city, now you have a crowd coming out. And isn't that the picture of that king coming back victorious? People coming to meet him and to usher him in as they come with him. These folks have heard, have rather witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, but they've also told the story in Jerusalem, and now those who have heard that testimony join them in coming out, and they all are flocking to see Jesus. They're also flocking to see Lazarus, because after all, how often really do you get to see someone who's been raised from the dead? Jesus is being treated as a kind of celebrity. And as he's making his final approach to the city, he's joining a stream, that stream of worshipers and this crowd is coming out to meet him and everyone is filled with a sense of optimism and enthusiasm and expectation. There's real joy. This is now a national celebration as it had been every year, but all of the celebration and the attention is now becoming focused on this one person, one of many in this crowd of people. This must be the long-awaited, much-anticipated, 
often prayed for Messiah, the King, who will come and deliver us from our enemies. So the crowds are surging around him. They're hailing him as his hero. And notice Jesus deliberately, intentionally, and finally publicly embraces his identity as the one sent by the Father to fulfill the Old Testament expectations of a Messiah. He is, as the prophet Zechariah had hoped for, the triumphant, victorious, and at the same time humble king who will enter into the city, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And the crowds are tearing off palm branches. We know from other places they're also lining the roads with their own coats and jackets. It's like they're rolling out the red carpet for a celebrity. And they sing Psalm 118. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They have great expectations, high hopes for this man. I love how John tells us, as he's writing, the disciples don't get it. But they will, and they do. After the resurrection, they will understand that this is all in fulfillment of what had been written about him and had been done to him. And of course, it's John who writes the book of Revelation as well. But before we get there, notice the enthusiasm is so great on the part of the crowd that once again, it exposes the antipathy, the antagonism the response of the Pharisees who have been trying for a long time to get Jesus to shut up. And they're looking on this now and they are realizing all their efforts, all their efforts to silence Jesus are failing. So much so now, it's the whole world has gone out after him. There was at least a time where it seemed like there was some sense of he's just a small, minor voice of a, a bit of an odd man who's up there in the north in Galilee. But, the, but now we have everyone coming after, following Jesus, celebrating him. So they begin to complain to each other. We are gaining nothing. We're losing in this popularity contest. The whole world has gone after him, which is a, a great way of, of reminding us of the words of Jesus himself when he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In just a few days, this celebration is going to become or turn very dark. The crowds will turn on him. His disciples will abandon him. The same religious leaders who had, to this point have been frustrated in their efforts to silence Jesus will finally succeed. Jesus will hang on a cross with a card above his head printed in languages that everyone can understand. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The joy and enthusiasm of this day, Palm Sunday, is short-lived 
But because it is short-lived and because it uh, precedes the suffering and the death and only a week later his resurrection, there's another day. There's another entrance, another triumphal entry yet to come. And that's where we come to the book of Revelation. Written by the same John, inspired by the same Spirit, And you could put it this way, the four gospel accounts which all tell the story of those last days of Jesus are interested in laying out the narrative. And the entire rest of the New Testament is like commentary on the suffering, death, and resurrection. And it's commentary written by, in this case, John, who says, I was there, I saw stuff, I witnessed that Palm Sunday triumphal entry. And I guess I would count myself among the rest of the disciples who didn't understand what was happening until later. The opening verses of Revelation 1 tell us these are the words of God's own revelation. He gave to Jesus, now mediated through an angel to the Apostle John, so that Jesus could share with us this good news. Grace and peace to you. From the eternal and unchanging Father who sent the Son. From Him who was and is and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, which I, along with many others, take to mean the work of the Holy Spirit evidenced in the church. And finally, from Christ Jesus, and here's where I want to focus the remaining time of our, our, your attention and our remaining time, Jesus, who on his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday is telling us there's going to be a repeat performance. Before we get there, notice John describes Jesus and who he is in three ways. And then he describes what Jesus has done in three ways before he gets to telling us what Jesus will yet do. Jesus is the faithful witness firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of kings of earth. As faithful witness, John is especially has in view here the, his, uh, the perseverance of Christ in testifying to God's great and precious promises given from the opening pages of Scripture to his arrival on the scene. And that Jesus was faithful and persistent in his obedience, even to the point of death, and especially through his suffering. From his temptation in the wilderness to his agony in the garden, his suffering on the cross, Jesus remained faithful. He's the faithful witness. As firstborn of the dead, we're reminded Jesus enjoys a position of preeminence and privilege. Many others had died before him. A small handful had been raised from the dead, but then died again. He's the first and the foremost, not only to succumb to death, but to enter into an indestructible life. And because he's the first and foremost, we follow. He's the firstborn. We are his younger siblings. And because he is the faithful witness, and because he is the firstborn from among the dead, he is also 
ruler of the kings of the earth. There are kings and rulers and powers on this earth. And here we, I think, are to think especially of all those in direct opposition to Christ, including ones we cannot see. In his death and by virtue of his resurrection, Jesus rules them all. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of all the lords. And then notice, after describing who Jesus is, John gets to three things Jesus does. He loves us. He freed us from our sins, and he's made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. He loves us. That is a whole sermon in itself. But he shares with the Father and the Spirit a love and a compassion and a mercy for us in our state of death and sin. He shares in that love that motivated him to set aside the glories of heaven, to come to this earth, to go through all he needed to do to free us from our sin. He laid down his life for us. He laid down his life. He loved us, laid down his life for us. That's how we know he, lo he loves us, so that he could free us from our sin. Again, Exodus language, isn't it? As God, through Moses, freed the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, Jesus, by his blood sprinkled in our hearts, frees us from our slavery to sin. So that we're free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and from the presence of sin. And he doesn't just free us or then leave us. As God did not simply bring the people out, get them across the Red Sea, and stop there. Jesus does what God pictured in the Old Testament Driven by his love, he frees us from our sins and he makes us into a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. In other words, I think you're especially invited to think for a moment that God's salvation accomplished for us in Jesus Christ is not only or merely an individual blessing. Yes, he died for you and you and you by name. But he brings you together in a kingdom, a nation, as a group of priests. And if you wonder where this language comes from, let me take you back to the book of Exodus 19. <clears throat> the language God used uh, to describe the newly formed nation of Israel, newly constituted, at Mount Sinai, he says this, and you can plug this in for the church. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you've been here for a while, you know that as we've been working our way through the book of Kings, the nation never lives up to this. 
When Moses delivered those words to the nation in Exodus chapter 19, do you know what their response was? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. For a minute. Jesus comes to fulfill the demands of God's law in perfect obedience. He comes not only as a second Adam, but he comes as the representative of God's people. He is God's son, as God had said of his people, you are my son. And he comes not only living in faithful obedience to God's law, he really does say, all that the Lord has spoken, I will do. And he did it. And then, he dies as if he had broken the law. And he does that in our place as those who always break God's law. And he does this so that his blood shed can free us from the sin that ensnared us. And by his spirit in all this, he now gives us not only that life, but he binds us together. He makes us a new covenant community. He makes us into a kingdom of priests, each one of us. And what do priests do? What do you do? You praise God. You praise God the Father who sent his Son. You praise the Son who went when he was sent, who loves us and shed his blood for us. And you praise the Holy Spirit who by the Father's hand raises the Son from the death to which he had succumbed and raises him to life everlasting, a life that can never end again. And so we would, are invited to join in with a stream of worshipers who witnessed Lazarus rise from the dead and who now know Jesus himself will rise from the dead. And we're to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To him, as John says, here be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then there's this. After describing who Jesus is and what he has done, they're still left hanging what he will yet do. There is a second triumphal entry in the works. Behold, John says, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Philippians 2 language in this as well. Then he will be openly, ultimately, visibly, and audibly. And not just locally, but universally recognized and acknowledged as king. And he will be so recognized because of his death and resurrection, his ascension into glory, his having received the kingdom from the Father and coming in the clouds with glory, with pomp and circumstance to bring that kingdom to its full fruition. He's coming to save, but he's also coming to judge.
He will be welcomed with joy by those who have put their faith and trust in Him. He will be celebrated by those of us who are looking for Him as the one who not only had come to free us from our sins, but who has freed us from our sin. Not the one who we think might be the Messiah, but the one we know is declared to be the Messiah and the King. But he's also going to come to the sounds of weeping and mourning, John tells us. I think fear and dread from those who have pierced him and who rejected him and who are rejecting him still. Jesus is coming back. He has one more triumphal entry in him. And the question this morning is this. Will you be among those who will eternally weep and mourn? Will you be in the crowd of the Pharisees saying, we're losing here? What can we do to silence this man? But then it'll be too late because he will not be silenced. Or will you be among those who are thrilled to see him? Openly, joyfully acknowledging him as king. Joining with a stream of worshipers who are coming with him. With him. And to him. As the one who loves you. Who has freed you from your sins. And who is making you individually into you corporately. A kingdom of priests. A bunch of worshipers who will forever and ever be able to say, may glory and dominion be to you forever and ever through our eternal and indestructible life, ours because of Christ's. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these moments recorded for us in Scripture, our Savior, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and entering into the city with much joy and jubilation, but with also a crowd off to the side, frustrated by their inability to silence him. Thank you for what this led to in his suffering, death, and resurrection. Thank you for what it points to in his triumphal entry from heaven to this earth to bring together heaven and a new earth, renewed, made whole with and filled, populated by joyful, thankful worshipers among whom we count ourselves. Lord, on this day, receive our thanks. Fill us with joy. Free us from sin. Make us like Jesus. And make us our God long for his appearing. We ask it in his name. And all God's people say together, amen.